This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the First Coast Week in Review are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News 89.9. Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and it's Friday, which means it's time for our first Coast Week in Review. And it's been a busy week. City officials, for the first time, recognized survivors of an attempted Klan assassination after a documentary screens in Jacksonville. Mayor Donna Deegan celebrates Black History Month with the creation of an African-American advisory board. The city faces a slate of new expenses from a jail to a ballpark to a relocated sheriff's office, and state lawmakers tighten up kids' access to social media, even as they relax restrictions on child labor. To talk about all that and more, I'm joined by Brianna Andrews, reporter and weekend anchor at News for Jacks. Brianna, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to have you on. You're a first-timer here? Yes, I am a first-timer. All right. Well, Will will try to go easy on you. Will Brown, Jacksonville Today's race, poverty, and inequality reporter. Hey, Will. Good morning. Good morning. Nikisha Williams, former TV producer, columnist, and multi-published author. Hey, Nikisha. Good morning. Good morning, Jacksonville. And Andrew Badillo, multimedia journalist at First Coast News. I think you're also joining us for the first time. I am, yes. All right. Nightside, nightside are up early today. Yeah, I blew past my alarm, but uh, <laughs> but we're here. I can relate. All right. <laughs> um, we want to hear from you as well, too. Uh, what headlines caught your eye this week? Give us a call at 904-549-2937 or email First Coast Connect at WJCT.org. You can also message us, uh, tag us on socials. You can even watch us now on YouTube and Facebook if you so desire to see these lovely faces. All right. So a long overdue reckoning. Let's start with that. Um, A racist attack last week. City council member, uh, a couple of city council members sat down with the survivors of a hate crime in Murray Hill 60 years after it happened. The conversation was prompted by a documentary that was released on the incident called Just Another Bombing, which had three screenings around town. Uh, Will Brown, you attended this meeting. It was called by City Council President Ron Salem. Uh, What was his connection to this incident? Ron Salem grew up in Murray Hill. He, as he mentioned, went to Ruth N. Upson Elementary. Uh, The thing that I will just never in my life forget is... Salem, when he was speaking with Iona Godfrey King and Donnell Godfrey, and Andrew was right there uh, with us, was he mentioned that in 1963, when he was in elementary school, um, he first really experienced racism because someone asked him, are you black? And that was when he went home and asked his parents, what did they mean by that? And that was the exact same year that Iona King tried to enroll her son into the previously all-white Lackawanna school uh, earlier in that 1963-64 school year. And midway through the school year, the Klan um, put a bomb under their house to just try and slow and stop integration. Um, And so for me, one of the biggest takeaways was the uh, survivors of KKK terror Some of them are alive and well and in our midst. And one of the things that um, prompted this discussion, uh, Andrew, was, you know, this sense, I think, like the president of the city council expressed was something that happened. um, It wasn't a secret. And yet nobody really knew about it. There has not been any kind of, um, you know, acknowledgement that this happened. The survivors of this um, Iona uh, 
Godfrey and her son, Donnell, said that the city never reached out. He transferred schools, the school that he was attending and had integrated, which was the reason for this bombing, had never reached out. Yeah, and um, I think Will kind of hit home what I took away as well from this is that, you know, you had people living in the neighborhood who are still very well connected to the city to this day who had no idea that this happened. Um, and the negative pictures that w- that I saw of the home, um, I mean, in today's day and age on social media and TV, that is like every single reporter in Jacksonville would have been at that house covering it. So we'd hope. We would hope, exactly. Yeah, and it didn't even make the front page of the local paper. No, it was like an AP wire story. The front page of the Florida Times Union. It made the front page of the black papers, but the Times Union couldn't have been bothered to report on something in Jacksonville. Nikisha, go ahead, Andrew. And Dorona Clark-Murray, Councilmember Clark-Murray, she does plan on creating a resolution to recognize what happened, Um, and she said she actually is going to personally apologize on behalf of the city um, who didn't do anything at the time. And Councilman Salem also said he'd like to be a part of that resolution as well. So that hasn't happened yet, but that that is in the works. Nikisha, is there a sense that if a crime of this magnitude can get kind of lost in history that anything can? (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, How much is already lost to history? This is not the first time in the history of Jacksonville's civil rights unrest of the 1960s, that a crime of this magnitude went uncovered. The decade started with Axe Handle Saturday that went uncovered, and there was an entire media blackout in the city of Jacksonville, except for the black papers and that one pressing image from Life magazine um, that remained to this day. And then the work of Rodney Lawrence Hurst, who has written the memoir to commemorate what happened and to uplift the names of the people that were there. So this is history literally repeating itself three years later from, from 1963. And it's going to continue to repeat itself as we continue to have an assault on history and on learning about the race-based terror and violence that happened in the period of the civil rights movement. And that's going to continue to repeat, as we saw with the race-based massacre that happened at the Dollar General last summer. You can't repair and heal and learn and teach and also have a whole system and government of erasure that's saying that it's, we, we can't teach about this, it's divisive. We're never going to heal past the divisions if we don't learn and try to grow. There's kind of a couple of things happening, Nikisha, though. There's there's this pushback on uh, education in of, of black history in Florida, right? There's kind of a limits on what can be taught, how it can be taught, how it can make people feel when they're taught. At the same time, you know, digital media and social media has helped create awareness of events like this one. The filmmaker said he'd never heard of it. He grew up. excuse me, he grew up in that neighborhood himself Mm -hmm. and he'd never heard of it until a historian, Tim Gilmore wrote a blog post about it. Mm -hmm. And that really was the impetus for the documentary and for all of this. Um, So there almost seems like there's two tracks of things happening where stories are becoming a little bit more available and yet also not being formally taught. The stories are always there waiting to be told. Um, And I give credit to the artists and the writers and the historians and the filmmakers and the musicians who do the cultural work, who do the anthropological work to unearth those stories that are waiting to be told and to tell them and to tell them honestly and accurately to uncover them for another generation. But that work should not belong to artists and culture workers alone. That work should also belong to teachers who are dispatched with the duty to teach children 
history and when they teach American history to teach it fully and in its truth as it happened, not as they wish it would have happened or to only teach the parts that aspire to the ideals of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all the pretty words in the Declaration of Independence. But yet we fall so short of in the even actual Constitution of the United States that deals with slavery in such a way as to codify it if it had not been for the Civil War. You have to teach all of that. So I give credit to the artists and the culture workers and I tell the teachers, no, I tell the government of the state of Florida to allow the teachers to do their job as they've been dispatched to do it. So well, to that point, um, Mrs. Mrs. K- uh, Ms. King, when she specifically challenged everyone in the state to be able to teach history, because one of the the t- I, I, I asked her about, you know, history not always being taught and mentioned that I graduated from a high school in Brevard County. And then she blew my mind when she said, oh, well, yeah, I was friends with Juanita Moore. I was like, wait, what? Who is Wa- the daughter of Harriet and Harriet Moore, uh, who they were educators and uh, activists and active in the NAACP and, and and had the temerity to try and get black people to vote. And they and had murdered a bomb, and had a bomb put under their house mm-hmm. as a Christmas present in 1951. Uh, so she's the daughter of those two civil rights icons who were killed on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they shared the fact that they both it survived Klan bombings. Um, and so but 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 Ms. King challenged all of us. And then in her words, she was like, well, there's not much you can do for the next two years. Impl- implicitly <laughs> and explicitly calling out Governor DeSantis. And, you know, she's in her 80s. And so some people when they the get governor to, who also used to teach history. Well, let's, well, let's you know, not forget that fact. One thing that's interesting, well, Brianna, is that, you know, the, the requirement in Florida is that black history be taught. And that's something that dates back to Governor Child's administration. Um, so it's been 30 years now where it's been required to be taught. And that law went into effect when our governor was in school in Florida, um, 94. You know, that was a time when he would would have been at the front edge of this effort to get students educated about black history. Is there a sense that since that time that there has been progress in Florida in terms of the kids who've been educated in the Florida school system about, you know, their awareness and, and acceptance of what's happened in black history in Florida? I think it just depends on the person. I think we've seen a lot of changes happen within the education system here in Florida. But I also think we're seeing teachers kind of struggling to meet the guidelines that the governor has recently set while also still teaching what has happened in history because history is history. You can't rewrite it. It is what it is. So I think there's still that ongoing challenge, but teachers are working to do their best with what they have to kind of still teach what has happened while still following the guidelines, which could be really tricky. Yeah, it's a bit of a minefield. We're talking about the week's top stories. You can join our conversation at 904-549-2937. You can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org, or you can tag us on social media. We have a call from Stanley. Good morning, Stanley. Thanks for joining the program. Good morning, everybody. Oh, when it comes to uh, African-American history, that's a requirement of the community, the African-American community. And I don't see that in Jacksonville or, or around the country. And I travel the whole United States. But I, when it comes to history, when it comes to race history, when I'm talking about African-American history or any other race, it is primary the duty of that race to make sure that the history is being told. Thank you. You think that's the case? I, I would say so. Um, I, I, and to some extent. But I also, I'm going to 
you know, St. John's County is the best school district in the state, as, as they say. But when I often speak with high schoolers in St. John's County and say, did you know Dr. King was arrested here? Most of them don't know that. So it might be a requirement, but just because something is a requirement doesn't mean it actually happens. Mm-hmm. And to the extent of what it ha- what happens is not, you know, I mean, I always use this as a personal example. You know, my mom won a federal voting rights lawsuit in the 70s in Sarasota County. They don't teach that in schools. I barely found out about it until I was an adult. And I'm a child. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's not that history isn't taught. It's how much history is taught. You know, one thing that came out of this meeting, Andrew, was Iona's encouragement for people to, she said, you know, you need to go to the elders in your community. You need to shake out these stories while people are still around. She said there might be some reluctance for people to talk about it. And that, she said, was almost kind of a, a cultural thing where there was some reluctance perhaps to dredge up difficult memories. But she said that there should be some... Um, urgency about doing that at this point. Yeah. And I I always kind of look at it like in the job that I do, I'm not going to learn by reading something online. I got to go out and talk to the people in the community. And I think that that's important for young kids. You have to go out into these communities and talk to the people that have been there and grew up in it. Um, I've done a lot of stories on La Villa. I didn't know when I first moved here anything about La Villa. I read a little bit online but talking to the people who've lived in the community through its heyday back when it was known as Uptown to what it is right now, the wealth of African-American history that is in that neighborhood and that you would never know just by driving through it right now, it's awful. It really is awful. Um, so until you get out in the community and you speak with these people and the pain and suffering that they've gone through, um, that's the real history that, that needs to be taught um, and I'm not sure how how you get that in schools. I'm not sure how it can be taught and put in a textbook um, because I know I didn't learn it growing up mm-hmm. as a as a as a kid. Nakisha, you looked like you wanted to speak to that question <laughs> of of you know whether there was any cultural resistance to telling these stories. You looked like you had a thought. I do because I I agree that people should go to the elders and and learn the stories, but. You can't expect people who grew up during that time to want to talk about it. Like my mother was born in 1947 in New Orleans, Louisiana, right? So that's height of Jim Crow. She tells stories only about when the buses were segregated, they could move the sign. So if it came, she grew up in the ninth ward of New Orleans. Um, so if the bus came by and the black people got on first, they would move the sign all the way to the back so that they could sit wherever they want. But, you know, you cross the canal, you cross the river, and it moves again, right? Anytime she comes to Jacksonville to visit me, and I've took, taken her to Kingsley Plantation, done some of the cultural things, I can see viscerally in her body. She's like, I'm never moving back to the South. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to relive it. She went to segregated schools. She went to an HBCU for college and grad school because she couldn't go to any other university because it wasn't allowed because of, because of segregation. So. Yes, we should talk to the ancestors, but then we all to the elders, but we also have to respect their boundaries. And you can't also just expect as strangers to open people up, open their memories, and then not do the kind of culture and care work to make sure that they are okay on the back end. So there's that tension there. There's that duality. And I agree with the caller that we should be teaching the history in our community and it should be passed down. Same as like when the Jewish community talks about the Holocaust and the horrors of World War II 
and are very vocal about that, but that history is also reinforced by teaching in school and supplementary materials. So yes, it's up to, up to the community. Yes, it's up to individual people, but it also has to be reinforced. And right now there is a lack of reinforcement to even make it seem as if that history is important, let alone worthy to be talked about or to be known. So we are losing stories, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but it has to be a concerted effort all around and that's not happening. So to put it all the onus on the community that's right now just day-to-day trying to survive, I think is a bit unfair. So Donnell Godfrey actually spoke about the difficulty of encountering and coping with and processing what happened to him at that meeting. Let's hear a little bit about what he had to say. Writing the book was therapeutical for me. It made me kind of drill down and deal with some of the things that uh, I had I had suppressed. So, yeah, in writing the book, I cried. I cried. And there are certain parts of the book right now I still tear up. But trauma black americans or africans have been traumatized for 500 years and this trauma has been passed down from generation to generation so this is what you see in the streets now the anger and these kids are shooting each other and, and, and carrying on mm-hmm. this anger and it's that trauma in my opinion that has been passed down from generation to generation Rihanna, i want to ask you about that i mean he's drawing really a through line for us between you know generational trauma, and what we see today in terms of social ills. I mean, I definitely think a lot of people can relate to that, especially um, when you're young and you're in school, when you think of uh, Black History Month. For me, when I was growing up, um, I remember every single year watching people who looked like me being hosed down. And that is a sense of trauma. You're in second grade and you're watching that and you're like, you don't understand that. Eyes on the prize, child. Mm. But at the same time, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, we all had to watch every it. year, every single year repeatedly. Lot. And you don't you don't understand race at that age, you know? So I, I definitely can understand how those experiences, reliving those experiences can, you know, give trauma to people who weren't even there generations later. But I do still think History is history, and you can't erase what has been done. Well, I mean, I I remember in fourth grade watching the Ernest Green story, and that was how I learned about the Little Rock Nine. And I was the first— For those who don't know, give us a little— So the Little Rock Nine uh, were uh, trying to enroll in uh, a high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones happened to be one of the kids who had dared not want them to be in the building, but I digress. Um, But nine students tried to enroll in a high school and it took federal officers to walk them into class Mm -hmm. in 1957. And my parents had hinted at it. And, you know, I I had to watch Eyes, not had to, I watched Eyes on the Prize uh, when it was on PBS Live. And uh, watching the Ernest Green story, I mean, I just sobbed at my desk as a fourth grader because I didn't know, I was like, this happened? People did this because people wanted to be educated? And it's, I mean, all these years later, it's one of only two movies that's ever made me cry. Um, and it was it was an uplifting story, but it was also like when I found out that the people enrolled in that school were still living, mm-hmm. it was mind-blowing. But I will say this, because the Little Rock Nine, they enrolled in 1957. Iona King, who we spoke with last week, graduated from Stanton High School in 1957. The mother. Yes. Mm-hmm. People are alive and well. Lanelle on Facebook says, our governor seems concerned about how white children will feel learning true history, but never seems concerned about how black or African-American children feel hearing false history. Um, 
I want to note at that meeting, um, Andrew, that Ron Salem, you know, he called this meeting and he obviously was very interested in trying to at least acknowledge what happened. But it was interesting that uh, Donnell, who lives, to be clear, he lives in Africa now and he lives in Africa largely because he doesn't feel safe in this country. He said that he feels much like less likely to die a violent death in Ghana than he does in the United States. Um, but he brought up the issue of monument removal, which, of course, this city council president is very much enmeshed in, you know, not because he necessarily opposes monument removal, but because the financing of this this uh, Confederate statue in Springfield Park has become such a touch point politically. Yeah. And, um, you know, Mon- and, and when Iona King and Donald Godfrey were talking about the state of Florida and legislation and monuments and, and the governor as well, um, y- you know, that did that didn't come up as to say Donald Godfrey didn't directly ask Councilman Salem, hey, how do you feel about monuments? So that conversation was never broached. But um, it all does play a role mm-hmm. when, when we talk about this. Um, you know, those monuments were put up as a intimidation, as a point of intimidation. They weren't there to honor um, fallen soldiers. They weren't there to honor the Confederacy. They were put up as a... Um, edifice of intimidation to tell black people you are not welcome here um so obviously that debate has been ongoing um and and it played out in that in that conversation as well we've got a caller david uh from pontevedra good morning david welcome to first coast connect good morning thank you Uh, enjoying the discussion um two-part question what aspects of black in the in the Florida public schools, what aspects of black history uh, would you like to see being taught that are not being taught currently? And then are there aspects of black history that are currently being taught in the Florida public schools that you do appreciate? Good question. Thanks, David. Nikisha. (laughs) I just see you sit up. (laughs) I know. I like like the question. Um, I would like in Florida public schools there to be a more comprehensive curriculum about black history it can't start with slavery and end in the civil rights movement it can't stay steeped in oppression and struggle it can't be that oh the slaves learned a new trade no to their benefit exactly like that's that's not accurate at all also we need to talk about the contributions that black people in this country have made in addition to the oppression and the subjugation that they suffered Cuisine, language, music, art, dance, inventions. I think in my last column, I talked about Lonnie Johnson and the Super Soaker because he really doesn't get enough credit. And though I was being kind of funny and facetious, it's it's, it's explain that who he Lonnie Johnson was a is a NASA engineer because he's very much still alive. He created the Super Soaker. <laughs> Anytime that you see kids running around with a Super Soaker in the summertime, give credit to that black man. <laughs> but <laughs> beyond just Lonnie Johnson, I think that we really do need to talk about the breadth of the black experience so that it isn't so downtrodden, so that it isn't so hurtful to both black and white students. I mean, the governor doesn't want white students to feel ashamed. I don't want my black son to come home and be like, well, all we were is slaves and think that it's okay if he's called out of his name multiple times in the same school year, which has happened. 
So it just needs to be broader. It needs to be as broad as American history is. Just like we teach from the revolution to present day, teach from 1619, which did have a curriculum, to present day. And I think that we would have a much more honest conversation about American history, not just black history, because black history is American history. And I think that's the point that's lost. Well, so to to specifically answer that question, there's some people, Josiah Walls, the first person who was elected to Congress after during the Reconstruction era. He was a Floridian. He represented Northeast North Florida. That's one person. Mose Norman, he's the person in Ocoee who really pushed for people to vote and was and made Ocoee a sundown town for decades. Uh, Harry because and of Harry- the Ocoee massacre correct, as well. Correct. Harry and Harriet Moore. Again, I'm sticking with Floridians because we're talking about Florida history. There, I mean, the 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 ways that. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, she was in Jacksonville. She was in St. Augustine. She was all over the state. Mm-hmm. These are all Floridians who we can easily talk about in more depth. And, and I mean, for crying out loud, look, let's look at Jacksonville. The east side of Jacksonville Abraham is what Lincoln it is. Abraham Lincoln Lewis. Exactly. Florida's first black millionaire. You know what's interesting? So there's so many people we had and a, stories. A, a guest in this week who, you know, they've created a black history curriculum kind of to David's point. Um Brianna, one of the things that she was phenomenal, by the way. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, well, the, the student who wrote some of the curriculum, right? But one of the things that we discussed in that conversation was the fact that you know Florida curriculum right now requires you know teaching of of certain things and eliminates other things. So you'll learn the names of people, for instance, who were abolitionists, but you won't learn the names of people who opposed, you know, who, who supported slavery or who opposed segregation. Um, and so there's a minimization, perhaps, of some of the people who participated in the wrongs, even if you're learning about the people that were heroes of the movement. And I think, as Nikisha said, I think it's important for conversations to happen, especially with parents, to get involved with what's happening within the school district and to make sure that their kid is getting the full education of what they need to learn about fully in American history. I think it's going to be up to people to have some type of uncomfortable conversations to truly, you know, pivot forward into getting the full aspect of American history. We've got a call. Glenn from the beaches. Good morning, Glenn. Welcome to the program. Hey, good morning, guys. I just wanted to share my perspective on this. I grew up in Murray Hill. I went to Ruth and Upson with uh, the councilman. And uh, that was during, I was eight years old when the incident in Lackawanna happened. And I can tell you, I never knew anything about it, heard anything about it, which is shocking, number one. And just wanted to share this experience with you guys about how we weren't taught anything about black history that I remember in school. I graduated in 73 from Riverside, which was Lee High School then. I'm at home a couple of years ago watching television. I love sci-fi and that kind of stuff. And I'm watching this show, and one of my buddies explains to me it's based on the massacre in Oklahoma. And I sadly had to say to him, what massacre? I, I was in my 60s and knew nothing of this. Wasn't taught it in college, wasn't taught it in high school. It's amazing to me that that goes on. Um, and I'm, I'm hope people continue to fight for it. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, it is sad. It really is sad. Glenn, thanks for your call. Uh, Charletta on Facebook says it's so true that our parents and grandparents suppress what they experienced because it was so painful to relive. I found out how my family actually came to, J- to Jack's in the first place from Georgia, just a few years back from a relative. They were on the run from white people 
whose son tried to molest my mom and she beat him up. Can you imagine having to leave your own home over someone violating your child and want to kill you as a result? So obviously some very difficult stories out there. Um, not any easier to, to, to tell. Um, we're going to move on now, though, to a topic of some bills being uh, levied or at least uh, suggested for the city of Jacksonville. Some big bills coming due. Um, Andrew, in addition to covering news, you also do sports reporting at First Coast News. Uh, and there was a lot of fanfare this week about improvements to the baseball park right next to your station. Um, nearly $32 million in upgrades for the one-to-one financial ballpark, which I think is crazy when you realize that in 2003, it just cost $34 million in its entirety. But here you are. Things have gone up. Everything's going up. Uh, as we're seeing with downtown development, costs are going up. The renderings look great, but <laughs> the building, uh, where, where is the building? So, uh, you know, um, but w- when it comes to sports, uh, when it comes to sports and renovations of stadiums and, and whatnot, um, everyone's trying to get the next biggest and, and better thing. And how am I going to model it after uh the most previous thing that came out. So um, one-to-one financial field is going to look a lot different. Um, if you've driven by it right now, the the bleachers are basically completely ripped out. Um, and uh, th- this new rendering uh, of what it's going to look like is fascinating, and especially for AAA baseball. Um, for them to be putting $31, $32 million into just the outfield part of it, uh, is pretty fascinating. Um, it's going to look really, really nice. I hope it gets done. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they don't just have the shrimp play there. Obviously they, they bring in the Savannah bananas as we're seeing in, in, um, in short time, um, college baseball has come there and, um, it's just one of many things that is going on in that stadium district, uh, with, with the stadium as well. Um, so, Downtown seems to really, really be focusing in on that sports and entertainment district right now. Um, and I guess hoping that it bleeds out to the rest of downtown. We'll see how that works. Um, in my opinion, it feels a little disjointed right now. And I'm not really sure how that cohesive plan is going to work with activating what is a really, really big downtown. And I guess how you describe downtown is different amongst a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Do you look at the North and South Bank as one thing? You look at the North Bank and South Bank as two different things, whereas Brooklyn and Riverside fit into that. Um, so I think there's a lot going on right now, but sports is definitely the driver at the moment. Mm-hmm. And Brianna, um, it's not a small price tag we're talking about for the baseball stadium, but the Jags estimated cost now $1.4 billion. Um, that would presumably be divided in half, about $700 million or you know, so for the city, um, that's a pretty big amount of money too. And that's, um, just one of many bills that are, you know, looming in the future to say nothing of a proposed jail. Yeah. I mean, it is, but I think the hope here with the stadium is that it will actually put Jacksonville more on the map, get more people here, boost the economy here. So I think, you know, I think the the goal here is to hopefully continue to make Jacksonville kind of more like a major city, get more people wanting to move here, come to games, which will trickle down into the economy. That's the hope there. But it is a hefty cost. And there are still a lot of other uh, things that have to be paid for. But I think people like I can't remember who had mentioned it, but I know that um, there were still questions of people even know where Jacksonville is. But people do know the Jags. So if that's what's making Jacksonville kind of get its spotlight, why not boost it up? I think that's kind of the argument there. And do you think that the 
the the community is at this point being receptive or resigned to the idea of footing half the bill for an NFL stadium remodel. I mean, I've spoken to a, a bunch of Jags fans while I've covered the story a million and one times. And for the most part, people are looking forward to it. I, I think, of course, the cost is is frustrating for some, but I think people are ready for Jacksonville to live in all of its glory. You know, we've been talking about uh, developing Jacksonville for decades. I think now people are ready to see that happen. And I think they think that, you know, building up the stadium is the golden ticket to that success. So Jacksonville today did a little breakdown on the cost of the stadium, what it could mean for the city, um, and said that if you take, you know, half of that cost of the stadium, you kind of annualize it for the city, it would be about $47 million annually plus in, plus interest. So that's not a small chunk of change. Um, by way of context, they said that the cost, the big ticket item for this next budget, the cost of re- resurfacing roadways for the entire county was $27 million compared to $47 million annually. So that really kind of gives you... Andrew, a sense of just how costly and how much of the city's resources would go towards this. Yeah. And we always talk about, you know, how to quantify um, what this will do for the city. Everyone's like, well, what, what's the benefit? What, where are my tax dollars going? I don't care if the Jags are here. Um, and, and you're seeing it right there. Mm-hmm. You know how much money it's going to cost per year out of the budget. And a lot of people I speak with are like, what about the roads? My road has had potholes in it for years. <laughs> we just did a story on a community in Dinsmore on Garden Street who have had potholes and they've been patched up for, for the longest time. The trucks roll through because it's an industrial neighborhood and the potholes back. So those are small examples, but they fester. You hear people talk about, are they patching these with coffee grounds, right? Because yeah. it's like, why <laughs> does this not work? I don't. Um, so if the Jags you know, Stadium is a $1.4 billion now we're looking at a new estimated jail cost. Initially, it was coming in around like 300, some 400 million. Now we're getting a cost of 1.2 billion. That's that is a far cry higher. Um, Will, is there any sense as to why those? I mean, obviously, we know things have gone up, right? Construction is more expensive. Land values have increased. But that seems like it's almost, you know, more than twice as much. I saw that number and was shocked. Uh, the that's the easiest thing I can say is, and, and Jacksonville is notorious for renderings and renderings and renderings. So how did pieces of paper go from extract, go 400% increase? I get, I get materials are more expensive and things like that. The one thing I would say is in light of what happened with the two downtown projects, it would probably, which two, uh, the, the project specific, that's correct. Land of many renderings, land of so many renderings. Um, the, the, former the Ford on Bay site, um, as well as the uh, site at Riverside Plaza. The old um, landing. Yes. I, I wanted to call it something else, but I won't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but my my point with those two renderings is maybe it behooves us as a city to kind of overestimate how much some of these things cost because those two projects are projects that went up in smoke in no small part because what the developers thought it was going to cost was considerably I mean, anybody less. that has tried to remodel a part of their house knows it, take it and double it, right? Right. Mm. So, so it maybe it behooves the city to overestimate so that they're not caught out later. Brianna, one of the issues in, you know, is this jail needed? Is this jail not needed? Is the question of uh, mass incarceration, which is something that you've reported on and kind of, is this jail needed 
because it's needed or is it needed to accommodate the fact that there's a lot of people that can't make bail, that there's a lot of people in the jail that have mental illnesses and that's the only place that we can warehouse them. Um, and so has there been a, a reckoning either on the financial level or the community civic level as to whether this facility is needed for those, re you know, is needed purely to house people or if there's alternatives and other ways to perhaps deal with that population? I mean, I do think there is some concern by the public about overcrowding in the jails. And I, I did do a story with the bail project. Essentially, what they do is they help people pay for bail because a lot of the time someone will get arrested and they end up in jail for past a weekend. You're talking about a couple of weeks and they end up uh, losing their job and it's a whole trickle down effect. So I think there is concern there. And I think that. And those are for offenses where bail is an option, right? So kind yes. of nonviolent. Yeah. And a level. lot of people and a lot of people cannot afford it. And it just continues this vicious cycle. So I do think uh, there are some concerns about what else can be done outside of just putting people in jail. All right. We've got a call. Linda in Mandarin. Good morning, Linda. Welcome to the program. Good morning. I'd like to step back to the um stadium issue. I asked this months and months ago. My understanding is when we came up with the rendering of this case, Mr. Khan gave us a rendering of like a wish list of what the owner of the Jaguars would like to happen to the stadium. But I thought that we actually own the stadium. So that would be like a tenant renting your property and saying, these are the renovations I'm going to do and I'm going to send you half of the bill. Did we even have any input into this you know, football stadium of the future, if we're going to commit 700, 800, up to a billion dollars, I mean, do we have any input in all of these things? I don't think so. I don't think we had input. The last time we had the upgrade, we got the pools and the widescreen TVs that were the latest and greatest when it happened then. Right. Linda, thanks for the call, Will. I mean, obviously, those renderings are the Jaguars renderings. It is city property, um, but that's kind of how it works in this situation? Yes. Usually it's the teams that um, have the renderings and, and work with the design uh, designers to do these type of, uh, to create these type of renderings. Um, the biggest things that the Jags have really said that the stadium of the future really needs is uh, shading for the east side of the stadium, vertical transportation, as in like ways to get people up to the upper deck. Um, those are two of the biggest things. Um, I, I will say this, uh, what makes Jacksonville a little bit different than some of these other cities that are getting NFL stadiums or renovating their stadiums. Uh, Kansas city is also talking about getting a new stadium is the state it, like, uh, in the Buffalo bills, they're getting state money. The Tennessee Titans, they're getting state money. Uh, when the Las Vegas Raiders, which recently hosted the Super Bowl, they got state money. We're not, Florida's going to. not giving any state mm -hmm, money. Right. So this is why it's so much of the expense on the city of Jacksonville. Plus, if we're going to spend all this kind of money, we should really get a Super Bowl at the NFL. We should say, Boy, hey, draft. not a draft. We need more <laughs> than that. We need uh, a Super Bowl. We got a message. Joanna Facebook says taxpayer dollars should be spent on the east side community. Most of the residents are black and underprivileged. They probably can't afford to attend the baseball games. Put people first. Um, I want to move on other topics this week. Um, this week, the mayor on the last day of Black History Month announced that she was creating an advisory board um, for the black community. The goal is to have an 11 member body that provides advice and a direct connection between the community and the mayor. Um, Nikisha, why is this seen as necessary? I think it's necessary only because of how the black community in Jacksonville has been treated 
for decades long before I moved here. And I think it's something that Mayor Deegan has noted in her life here as a resident in the city is that, you know, we already have this civil rights case about the election gerrymandering, right? So like that, that's just one aspect where the voting power is diminished. Um, there were all the promises made with incorporation that so many things would be fixed, the septic tank systems, the neighborhoods, the the separation of the city really by the bridges and the river. That is yet to be overcome. And then we talk about the racial differences as we've been talking about earlier today. All of those factors are still very present day issues in addition to the communities that experience food apartheid, in addition to the communities that have underfunded schools to which the school district's capital improvement is working to address, in addition to the crime, in addition to the poverty, in addition to the generational trauma. And those concerns have yet to be addressed by any administration. And so the mayor taking a step forward to say, hey, at least let's put together a board so that we can bring the concerns to the forefront she may not be able to address all of it or even half of it in this first term, but it's a step forward in the right direction for that so that people's voices are heard when they are co- continuously made to feel as if they do not matter and are and are diminished. I know there was a, a shooting recently in the, the Eye Care Coalition met, and they've been asking for a meeting with the police department and with the sheriff for years, even before Sheriff Waters' tenure as sheriff, and they are constantly rebuffed and met with, you know, that's not something that they're going to to get and so it's like, let's bring people to the table to 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 a seat of power so that we can start addressing these issues and heal the divisions in the city. And I think it's a good step forward. So advisory boards aren't unique to this mayor. We've had in the past mayors create a Hispanic advisory board, um, an advisory board on the status of women, one on Asian-Americans living in Jacksonville, even uh, an older buddies group that Jake Godbold created back back in the day. Um, it's signaling, Brianna, but does signaling matter when it comes to an issue like involving the African-American community and giving them a seat at the table with the, with the mayor? A lot of times when I'm um, doing stories in communities that are predominantly African-American, they continuously say, hey, we feel unheard. We feel like we're forgotten about. We have food deserts. Why isn't anything done about it? Why do we have to travel so far to get to a grocery store and feed our families? So I think maybe uh, this is a possibility of their voices uh, being heard, maybe recognizing what they've been saying for years, at least for the time that I've been here. That's consistently what I hear. Even when we're talking about Election Day, when when they're placing their ballot, they're saying, hey, well, you know, we're here because I want change in my community. I want to see, you know, I, I want it to be improved. I want it to be a better place for me and my family. And I've been here. These, these are people that I'm talking about who have been here for generations to generations that are still waiting for what they say is some type of acknowledgement. Andrew, I want to move on to talk a little bit about what's happening in Tallahassee. This um, legislative session, lawmakers are tackling a couple of bills that are affecting kids. One is a really unique uh, move against social media for kids under 16. The other is a real loosening of child labor laws. Is there a sense that there is any kind of coherent messaging about, you know, the state's position on kids who are vulnerable, who need help, who need protection? Yeah, it's. It's really interesting when you look at these two bills, because one is like one is, like you said, being over, very, very protective of kids and what they consume and what they can do on social media. And another is is, you know, dictating how many hours they can work. Um, so the social media ban is really, really interesting because it's saying that you have to provide documentation of age. Um and the social media company is saying there's 
guaranteed anonymity that comes with that. Um, I'm not sure how how that is going to work. I mean, kids are smart. <laughs> kids are really smart. Nikisha, is there a sense it kind of depends on which kids you're looking at? I mean, I know lawmakers have gone into the session like social media, mental health issues. We're seeing it in our own families. And you kind of hear that a lot. But when it comes to kids who might be, you know, working in fields or working low and low wage jobs and still trying to go to school, it might be a different community. You mean the problem with the undocumented child labor in the United States that we're talking about? Um, yeah, there is a difference about which kids are being targeted. And yeah, I said it because we're not going to act like it's not a problem. Um, personally, it seems as if the bills that have gone through this legislative session are continued to be in support of now the governor's failed presidential campaign. And so they are catering to an audience of conservatives, we'll use that word, that want to stand on the grounds of parental rights and being outraged and abhorred by the content that's on social media and the harms that are perpetrated there, but then also still want their strawberries and their tomatoes and all of their fruit to arrive on time in the grocery store and to be right. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. We don't have a consistency of rhetoric or power or legal structure or legislation or even governance. We have someone who's seeking power for themselves, dictating what should be happening in our state to our children. We're going to have to do a lightning fast, lightning round. <laughs> I'm going to start with you, Nikisha. All right. Black History Parade on March 3rd in the Melanin Market to continue Black History Month 365. I support it. All right. Andrew. Lightning round? You got one? <laughs> I don't. No, we'll move you on. We'll move have on. no idea. You got no idea? All right. So my lightning round probably is going to be something newsworthy, but I'm not. Uh, today is my son's ninth birthday, so I want to say hey, happy birthday to my buddy. big buckaroo. Aww. Happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday, buddy. Birthday. And you? Um, oh, my gosh. I, you know what? All right. I'll tell you yes. what. I am watching yesterday the media got kicked out of the JEA trial. This is our one chance to have a reckoning with what happened with JEA. I am urging everybody to pay attention because the media should be there to pay attention for all of us. Got it. Does it have to be Jacksonville related? We're oh, out yeah. of time, man. We're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you off there. Andrew Badillo, Nikisha Williams, Will Brown. I appreciate all of you being here. Rihanna, thank you for being a first timer. Thank you. You did great. And we're going to be back in just a minute with what's hot in the week and weekend ahead. LifeSouth Community Blood Centers, providing blood and patient services to the local hospitals, serving patients in this community. Donating blood with LifeSouth helps save lives. More at LifeSouth.org to find a blood drive near you. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com.
At ViStar Credit Union, we believe in helping members reach their financial goals and building stronger communities. It's why we offer our members better rates and give back to the places we call home. ViStar Credit Union. Visit ViStarCU.org join. Celebrate Gospel and Jacks at WJCT Studios on Tuesday, March 5th. The evening will feature a conversation with local experts and live musical performances. 6 p.m. reception, 7 p.m. program. Register for this free event at WJCT.org events. Well, you don't need a forecast when you're hearing those kind of tunes. David Luckin, I am joined now by my pal and electro lounge lizard, David Luckin. Uh, uh, I, th I thought we'd start with that Riders on the Storm. You know why? Because my pal Tim Deegan says we're going to have rain all this weekend. Oh, my gosh. It is looking like a not a not a great weather weekend. So, so I've got some great things for you to do inside. So let's uh, maybe go to the Cummer Museum and Gardens. They're always, they always have excellent shows. And on exhibit now is a really cool one. It's called Sporting Fashion Outdoor Girls 1800 to 1960. You ready for that, Ann? Sporting attire. attire so this yeah. is like what the women wore when they're competing. And I'm really excited to see it. I mean, I don't know that any of those fashions have stuck around, but like all old like sporting gear, it's very, very archaic and Remember strange. Remember those early football helmets yeah. that were just padded, you know, they weren't yeah, even hard. Like a little... So, so that's that's one thing you can do. And of course, when Ann and I go there, we always hit the cafe and we get the soup and all the good I food get there. Very good veggie burger there, I will say. Uh, and and uh, we had um, the, the uh, cast from Oklahoma, which is at Alhambra now, uh, oh, yeah. earlier in the week. And I want to just tell people they were so good. Those young energetic performers go to the uh, Alhambra and see Oklahoma. They it's, it's also a, have like a very special menu, like Oklahoma style. Oh, oh do so they really? Got, like, chili special. and cornbread. And yeah, it I love should it. be fun. And then, as uh, Nikisha said, Black History 365 Parade and Celebration at A. Philip Randolph Heritage Park that Sunday. We're going to hope for good weather for yeah, that exactly. element because, you know. And uh, something else crossed. to do indoors. If you're a um, hockey fan, the, the Icemen are winding down their season, but they will be playing the Orlando Silver Bears this hockey. weekend. I love hockey. Yeah, you? Hockey oh, yeah. fan? Oh, yeah. Well, I grew up, in, up north, donut, so, right? yeah. Uh, and we're also uh, hopefully stretched and all warmed up for the annual Gate River Run. You going to run that in? You um, all set? I have not done the gate. I have looked at doing the gate, but, you know, I'm not quite there. That green monster, I drive over it, and it's about all I can take. It's rather daunting, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I can't Hopefully imagine. the weather holds for them. Uh, what else is going on around town? Um, oh, I know that Dan Luckin, or Dan, not Dan. Dan Scanlon. Dan Scanlon was here talking about the Concours, and which is like if you're a car nerd, oh. you're a car nerd. Oh, oh absolutely. I'm I've been to about 25 years of that. I'm not going to make it this year, but yeah, if you're, if you're into cars and the interesting thing about that, Anne, is it's more than just cars. It's really art. You're looking at just style, much like the fashions of sports. You're looking at things from long gone days and you're just looking at these cars saying they are so beautiful and they're so styled. 
It, Some it's really just, it, elegant lines. It, it, totally. And they go all the way back to the Brass Age. So you're seeing cars from the 1903 to, to Ferraris from the 60s. It's always a wonderful place to go. And it benefits, I, I believe they give a whole lot of their money, like the TPC, to charities. Yeah, it's a big so charity it, deal. It, and a very shoosy place to be, right? Oh, you're around is. all these oh, yeah. posh cars and it, it's, this fancy it, golf course. Well, I love going there with the, the press credentials because we were all in and before the crowds. So yeah. we get all the pictures and everything. So I will miss that this year. Um, but, oh, oh, and here, one more thing to remember is next Wednesday's first, uh, Wednesday art walk. Remind people. That plan, is plan once for that. a month and always a fun thing to do downtown. I mean, it really does give an invigorating, you know, streetscape. I mean, it really just feels like a different place during art walk. Totally. And if you want to support local businesses and just walk the streets and, and see great art. And, and I always run into people I know. If yeah. nothing else, it's fun to, to see old friends. Um, so that's basically, there, there's ton of more stuff going on. Don't, don't get me wrong. This is a short list compared to all the things you folks can find to are do Are you going to be weekend. gardening this weekend or are you going to be? I always do. That is my weekend. Yeah. I, I've started a really <laughs> nice flower garden and, um, and it's popping up really nice. I've got black eyed Susans and daylilies and all kinds of stuff. But so you've got avocados, oh, oh, pineapples. No, I've got, got... Uh, my orange tree. My, I must have a thousand blossoms in my lemon oh, tree. That must so, so the good. avocado, no blossoms yet. We, we can hope and pray. I am growing tomatoes, though. They're I already actually, red. I, I have to confess, I stole an orange blossom off my neighbor's tree because it smelled oh, so it good. I had to so bring good. it home. So. Oh, yeah. I should have brought you some. Yeah, you should. So we'll, 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 we'll wrap that part up. And what we're really excited about and looking forward to is we're going to bring this incredible harpist to town to our JME soundstage right here at the WJCT studios, if I can say it. Brandy Younger. Thank you. Brandy Younger. And she's amazing. I love harpist. I had all Alice Coltrane's albums in the 70s, so I can't wait to see her. She will play jazz. She plays with hip-hop bands. She plays with everyone. And we thought we'd stop talking and, and, and play a, a, a little bit of Brandy and, and get you to come in March 14th and see her in person. I'll give away a couple tickets next week. So tune in next week. We'll give away a couple tickets. And on Friday, we'll have an interview with her. So uh, I can't say enough good about Brandy Younger. Can't wait for her to be here. What an amazing musician. She, she truly is. And um, here's a little bit of her. All right. Thanks, David Luckin. That's our program. You can send feedback, comments, or suggested topics to First Coast Connect at wjct.org. And this program will be rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight if you missed anything. All our shows are archived at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platform. Join us again Monday. We're going to talk about U.S. relations in Russia and Ukraine with one of the world's leading experts. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9.
Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.